So we come to chapter 21 in Revelation. Chapter 21 is just amazing. It's so good. And how we have gotten this so messed up. Where in the world did we get that heaven is going to be a mindless Alzheimer clinic with bad hymns piped in where there's nothing to do? Floating on a cloud. So we're going to look at what is here today and is it so exciting. Chapter 21 verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now normally when we say something has passed away, it's bad news. Usually that means we've lost a pet or we've lost a friend or a family member. But in this case, the earth we know has passed away. The heaven we know has passed away. And good riddance. This is a good thing. We're going to get a new one. Also, there was no more sea, which is an odd statement. So he saw a new heaven and a new earth, but it was remarkable to him that there's no sea on this new earth. Now, what does this mean? Well, it doesn't mean there's no more water, because if you just peek ahead to chapter 22, the very first verse, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne. So one of the central elements of this new Jerusalem we're going to be talking about is a wide river. So there's certainly running water. Presumably that running water goes somewhere and pools up. Perhaps not. Perhaps there's just a constant running in this new earth. But what seems to be the case is that there's not a predominance of water on the earth. Today's earth is covered by water. 70% water, 30% land. It's not going to be that way in the new earth. There's also another element that we've seen that the sea is used figuratively in Revelation and in Daniel. The beasts rose out of the sea. Do you remember that? And the sea was something that the harlot was hovering over or coming out of. There's definitely an idea here that the worldly system, this chaotic, unpredictable, destructive force is no longer a dominance in the new earth. And that is something we would expect. Then I, John, saw the holy city. And so we're emphasizing here, I'm John, and I was there, and I saw this. Perhaps it is that this is so remarkable, you're going to have a hard time believing it if it's hearsay. No, this is first-hand evidence. I saw this with my own eyes, and I'm telling you about it. I know it's hard to believe, but I saw it. I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Isn't this fascinating? Apparently, there's a prefab city that gets lowered down onto this new earth. How long have they been building on this city? Maybe a thousand years. Maybe it's under construction now. But this city is called a bride. He says here, prepared as a bride. But if we look over in verse 9... Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So it's prepared as a bride, and it is a bride. Now this is somewhat confusing, because how can a city be a bride? I can understand how a city could be prepared as a bride. You've all been involved in weddings to some extent, haven't you? And on wedding day, where is all the focus? It's all on primping the bride, isn't it? You've got to have the dress just right. 
and you've got to have the makeup just right. And you have to have something blue and borrowed and all that stuff just right so that when the doors fling open, all the women will cry. And that's the whole idea. And if you can get the groom to cry, all the better, right? And isn't that the way that works? So prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. So this is something that Jesus said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a city that's going to make everybody cry when it comes through the aisle. And that city is my bride. Now, why does that set off alarms in your mind? Who's the bride supposed to be? They're the church, right? Isn't that what we've always heard? It's the church. How can it be the city and the church? Well, let's first go back to the famous church verse, Ephesians 5:32. And in light of what we've been talking about in Revelation, and particularly last week, I think this is a fantastic connection. So, 5 verse 32, he says, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So, what he has said before is about Christ and the church. And what did he say before? Well, he said something that's read at most Christian wedding ceremonies. Go back to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, why did Christ give himself for the church? Verse 26 answers that question. That he may sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Now, why would we want to give himself in order to just cleanse something? Well, he answers that in the next verse, verse 27. That he might present her, the church, to himself, Jesus, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their wives. What Jesus wanted was a bride. And what he did to get that bride is go and give himself for the church, for us. But not just so we could be born, but so that we could grow up to marry an age and be the bride that he had in mind. And so he has spent his time on us and his focus on us, giving us what? What did we learn last week? Prepares us for him. Fiery trials. We get fiery trials in this life. To the extent we don't have the fiery trials refine us pure enough, we get judgment seat of Christ. Our part in the lake of fire. That's Jesus' face, possibly. And the purpose is to burn away the wood and the hay and the stubble so that we're ready to be this bride, shining and dazzling like jewels. Because he wants to cleanse us, and not just with fire, but with the Word. Washing us with the Word. I remember when I was a 7th grader, my mom, who was a real introverted lady, she didn't talk much. She read a lot. She prayed a lot. She would answer if you talked to her. She would sit and read to you all day. She would listen to you all day, which was handy for me, because I'm a talkative. And I was getting into that rebellious teenager thing, being real sassy. And she only ever did this one time. And she said, sit down. You're really getting out of order here. And she picked up her Bible and started reading John 1. In the beginning was the Word. And it just felt like somebody shot me with an arrow. I never forgot that. Because she was washing me with the Word. But it was also a fiery trial. The two can be the same. Have you ever had that experience? Where your words... Pierce someone else, maybe your children, or maybe they pierced you. And the 
point is to get us ready for this moment when there's a bride. Well, how can the bride be a church in a city? Well, it kind of makes sense, really, when you think about it, doesn't it? Because the bride's all of us. And if it's going to be all of us, we have to have a place to have the kind of community it takes to have the kind of oneness that's necessary to be a bride. Structure determines behavior in our world. It apparently will in this world as well. And there's going to be a city that is constructed for the purpose of bringing together the kind of unity and the kind of community that brings the kind of intimacy that you get in marriage. Perhaps you live in a really cool neighborhood. Or you've been to one that you wish you could be in. It's a little hint of what that experience might be. I've spent some time in big cities... And it's always interesting to me when you talk to someone about why do you like to live here? You'll hear people, you know, the commute's awful. The pollution's awful. The crime's awful. The taxes are awful. You hear all this whole litany of, well, then why don't you move somewhere else? Oh, the city's so fantastic. There's restaurants. Do you ever go eat there? No, no, but they're there. There's a sports team. You ever go to those games? Well, no, no, but they're all, they're there. You just want to belong to something. You put up with all this misery to belong to something. And then you go to someone who's very wealthy. And they love the city, but they never go to it. They, they live in a gated community or a, an enclave, and they have their clubs. and they, they actually live in a tiny little town with all people just like them. And at the other end of the spectrum, you get the homeless people that have their little community under the bridge but they love the city but they've ghettoed themselves up they don't actually love the city they love the idea of the city well this is going to be the real deal where it's not going to be a ghettoized city where you have to put up with a bunch of junk it's going to be something that makes us a bride together togetherness and community isn't that exciting and we're going to kind of get little hints of what it's really going to be like as we unfurl here. But keep in mind, uh, it's a place where bridehood happens. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Now this is the best news ever. This is the culmination of human history. This word dwell is the Greek word skenoo, and tabernacle is the Greek word skene. So it's a noun and a verb form of the same basic word. So better translation would be, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. Let me just show you this. I think it's worth emphasizing somewhat. This word tabernacle shows up in Luke 16, verse 9. This is the parable of the unrighteous steward. And at the end of the parable it says, And I say to you, make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon, money, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting skenoos, tabernacle, home, dwelling. Same word. It's just a place to dwell. The reason I think the translators chose the word tabernacle is because this particular application of dwelling is the dwelling of God. And you say, well, that's happened before, right? In the wilderness? No, no, not really. Exodus 40:34 tells us what happened when they got the wilderness tabernacle prepared. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled their tabernacle. 
And the same thing happened with the temple. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. And in fact, they called it the Shekinah glory. That glory left the temple before the Babylonian destruction. And why did the Lord himself not dwell there? Well, for one thing, if he would have come down, everybody would have died, right? We couldn't stand that presence. But now what's happening is we can. Remember, Jesus is going to have a face that melts the old heaven and the old earth. That's going to be what his physical presence is like. We're going to see in the next chapter that his physical presence provides enough light to light up this whole place. Clearly, if we were in our current bodies, that wouldn't work. But we're going to have new bodies. Paul calls them spiritual bodies. So spiritual and physical are separate things in our world. That's paradoxical. But somehow that paradox is going to go away. In some way, this light that perhaps in some segment of our life is going to be burning away wood, hay, and stubble is going to become an amazing sustenance for this beautiful bride that we become. Because remember, who is conformed to the image of Christ? Everyone who's called according to his purpose. It's just a matter of how will you be conformed through fiery trials on this earth or through having all this wood, hay, and stubble burned away. And clearly, 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 what this book is urging us to do is embrace the former. It will happen, however. Which is encouraging. We talked about this last week. That God is for us. We're his bride. He just wants us to get us ready. It's a very encouraging, although daunting, prospect. He will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. So now God is with us. No more are we in a situation where we walk by faith. Three great things. Faith, hope, and love. Only love remains. The love of the intimacy of a perfect marriage is still here. But not faith. You can't believe what you see. We're going to be living with God in His presence in this new city. If You can't hope for what you have. If you have it, you don't hope for it. Those two things are gone. Love remains. God Himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. And good riddance, right? That's a passing away that's good riddance. What sorrows will be gone? Well, maybe the scars you took with you to heaven from your life on earth. Maybe it's the regrets from the wood, hay, and stubble you burn up. Maybe you look back and say, I did not redeem my time on earth. Well, that's going to be bad. That's going to hurt. That's going to create a suffering of loss. It's something that we're urged to avoid. But you know what? If we have it, that period's going to come to an end. And it's going to be wiped away. And then we're going to pass into a new era where those pains become lessened. Those disappointments become preparation. And we're now a bride. And we move forward into a new existence. I don't think it'll be a memory wipe. But, you know, if you think about it, you can take a painful memory and turn it into an important lesson. Now, you've had that happen to you, right? So something that was painful becomes actually a blessing. And I don't think it's that we lose the memory. It's that we change the perspective of it. And God's going to turn all those things into lessons. And my personal take is we're going to say, okay, I blew it. But you know what? I learned from it. And now I've got this, you know, station and I'm moving on. You know, you can do that in this life too. God does that in this life. If we will, what does Philippians tell us we're supposed to give thanks for? All things, right? Except for our mess-ups, right? If we screwed up, we're not supposed to ever let that go. We're supposed to always beat ourselves up with that. 
so that we can kind of remain some in control that we were better than that, you know, and that's really where we are. But No, no, let's give thanks and all. Thank you for showing me I'm an idiot. Thank you for showing me that I'm arrogant. Thank you for showing me that I'm, you know, stupid to trust myself. Now I know that and I can live a different life. Yeah? But the pain goes away in time. I, that's what I've found. I, I, you know, when I've gone through my really difficult times, it usually takes like sometimes years from, until the pain turns into thanks, feeling-wise. Okay? But that's the position we're going to be in. And you know what? It might take a thousand years to get, for some people to get over it. You know, it might take a thousand years. You know, we've got the, the new heaven and the new earth in a thousand years, and some people are not going to be reigning during this thousand years. It's possible some people aren't reigning in this time, too. It seems to me as though, since all tears are wiped away and so forth, if they're not reigning, there's at least part of the intimacy. It's not real clear to me how this works. But again, God's not telling us in this book, here's how it works so you can game the system. He's telling us, be a faithful witness and don't fear death, and it's going to be more than worth your while. I think that's the point. And you know, you know, it may be that during this thousand years or some period of the thousand years, we're actually get get a chance to relive our life with God, Jesus standing by our side, pointing things out, including the thoughts that we're having. I don't know about you, but I, that was terrifying when I first thought about that. And now I've gotten to the point where you know that's going to be like a film day back in the sports. You know, like Ugh, I knew I knew I, I took a playoff. You know, and I have, but you learn from it, right? And so it's just part of, part of the process. And then that becomes experiential. And then we get to the point where we say, you know, I got what I deserve. Everything worked out. Now we've got a new life. And interestingly enough, I think this is actually the third earth. We get indications that the first earth was destroyed by Satan or, or some angelic war that happened. And the earth that we're on was recreated, it seems like the language says, because it was created, it was already stuffed there. It was just formless and void, remember? And then it was, it was redone. And this is like the third earth, which kind of makes sense. Everything tends to come in threes when it's completion. So this is fun for me because I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan. That means we're living in Middle Earth. <laughs> right in the middle between the other two. Isn't that cool? All right, then verse 5, Then he who sat on the throne said... Now, remember, throne shows up 41 times in Revelation. This is the 40th occurrence of throne. And all this time as we've gone through Revelation, the speakers have been angels or messengers. Sometimes Jesus, sometimes Jesus speaks. But I haven't found a place where actually the message is coming from the person sitting on the throne. So this is a signal, I think. He said, I, John, saw the holy city. And now he says, the person sitting on the throne said. So, boop, our ears should perk up, don't you think? And then the person sitting on the throne says, behold, I make all things new. Now this is really startling, isn't it? Because what has been taking place since the seventh day, or the sixth day of creation? Jesus has rested. God has rested from creation. And in the beginning was God. And then he made the heavens and the earth, and then he rested. And now all that has fled away from his face, and he's going to make everything new again. So this is Genesis 1-1. All this is a total new beginning. Do you get the impact of that? Genesis 1-1 is happening again. 
And by his word and whatever other mechanisms, he's going to make it again. I make all things new. And he, and he said to me, this guy on the throne, write for these words are true and faithful. Now, this is a major oversight in my life. And I'm going to try to make it not an oversight anymore. If you've got God sitting on his throne, and the only time he speaks from his throne is here, and he says, write this down, because this is really important. Shouldn't this be on all our cross stitches and bumper stickers and t-shirts? But it's not. And I propose it's because we don't have a paradigm to understand what he's saying here. But I'm also going to propose that you do. And we're going to see what he's saying here, and it's going to sum up all of Revelation. The book that says, if you read, understand, and do, you get a special blessing. I was talking to a friend recently about what his background was in Revelation. He said, well, you know, when I was growing up, I was just told, stay away from Revelation, it'll mess you up. And that's been pretty prevalent. You know, the book that says you get a special blessing, no, stay away from that. You don't want any of that special blessing stuff. You know, And in a sense, since special blessing and fiery trial tends to go together, it's understandable. I have a friend that at one point in his life said, Man, I just don't want to live a faithful Christian life because faithful Christians get the Job experience, and I don't want that. You know, he was observing something I think that's true. If you don't brace the fiery trials, you, you tend to have an easier life in a sense. In a sense, from the world standpoint. If, if you don't embrace the giants and the walled cities and you've got to get your own food and grow your own food now, if you don't embrace that, you get the desert where your shoes don't wear out and the food just shows up every day. And there's something attractive about that. right? It's an easier way. But you don't get the inheritance. You get the bowl of stew and you lose the inheritance. And that's what the Bible's trying to get us is, look... You're missing out on one of the main things that life is about if you take this easy path. Right, for these words are true and faithful. Okay, so let's get it. And he said to me, so here we go. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God. And he shall be my son, but the cowardly, unbelieving, Abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Next verse, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls and the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me. So that's it. That's what the voice from the throne says. Write this down, get this. Now, after you read that, it's easy to see first reaction why this wouldn't be on our bumper stickers. Other than, I've heard the, the kids, they will say, uh, what, is it, what is the saying, liars go to hell or something like that? They have a little chant that they do. Liars go to hell, liars go to hell. Yeah, okay. So we get that from this verse. That's the closest thing to a bumper sticker, which, which is always applied to who? Me, of course, right? No, no. That's always you. You're the liar that is going to hell. Okay, so... This is, write this down, well, obviously this doesn't apply to me. You know, it's, this book is to believers, 
And it says to the believers, if you read, understand, and do, you'll get a special blessing. But when the guy on the throne speaks directly and says, write this down, for this is faithful and true, clearly he's talking about somebody else. Well, I think that's what we've done with it. But I don't believe he is. I think he's talking to John and us. So let's unpack it. First, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Who started all this? The Creator. Who's going to end it all? The Creator. Do we have to fear the world ending by some invasion of aliens or something that is going to come and that all the movies are about. Have you noticed how many movies are about the world ending or somebody trying to take over the world? Why do we like that so much? That's because that's the actual drama we're in. Somebody is trying to take over the world. And somebody is going to invade it. And we're going to be involved. If we're living as faithful witnesses, we're on the right team for that big invasion that's going to happen. And he said, it is done. When, when this, is, this will be finished when God's ready for it to be finished. It's on his outlook calendar. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Can something be the beginning and the end in this world? Is that possible? To be the beginning and the end at the same time? I, I can't think of anything that's like that. I, I know we can start stuff. I know we can shut something down. But he's, start, he's, he's the beginning and the end. He's the definition of all existence is what he's saying. And that means he's outside all of this. That's how he can create it and then recreate it. Because he's outside all this. Look, I made this. I made, and I made it for a reason. And that part's done and I'm going to do something else. What is he going to do? First, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Now, this is the best news ever. What do you have to do to get the water of life? Be thirsty. Could anything be easier than that? Yes, one thing, looking. As the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. What did they have to do to get cured from the snake bite poison? Have enough faith to look. Is anything easier than that? Yes. Mom, I'm thirsty. Can I have a drink of water? Raise your hand if you're a parent and your child has asked you for a drink of water and you told them, no, you don't deserve a drink of water. You've got to get your behavior up. You can live a full three days without hydration. And if you don't straighten up your life, you, you, you clean your room, you do your chores, then you get a drink of water. Now, there may be other things that you say that about, but not water. I mean, there may be instances where they're going to go to surgery and they can't have water. What do you say then? Ha ha, this is a chance where I get to watch you suffer without... No, I'm really sorry. I can't give you water here. It would make you sick, but as soon as you wake up, we'll get... Right? We don't mess around with water. If your child wants water, you give it to them. Well, this is the gift. See, this is the gift. Who's going to be in heaven? with Jesus as one of his children. Everybody that admitted they were thirsty. Why won't people admit they're thirsty? Well, for the same reason they don't want to be cured of the snake bite poison. They like it. I don't want to be cured of this snake bite poison. I like my snake bite poison. I don't want to be cured of thirst. I, I, I like being parched. But all you got to do to be part of this bride and be conformed to the image of Christ is say... I'm thirsty, I want some. You know, if you've got friends that doubt whether they're really a Christian or not because of the way they behave, you could take them here. Have you told Jesus you're thirsty and would like 
a drink of living water? Well, then believe that He gave it to you. This is the gift. It can't be messed up. Birth is an irrevocable gift. And it's as easy as asking for a drink of water. Isn't that cool? This is true and faithful. Write it down. All you got to do to be here with me is be thirsty and ask for a drink. But that's not all. See, birth is important in life, isn't it? Anybody here that didn't get born? See, it's, a, it's an important prerequisite, right? We celebrate it once a year, whether we need to or not. But life is mainly about all the decisions and actions that we take in between birth and death. It's the dash in the middle of the two dates that we mainly focus on. And so it is here. If you've been thirsty, you're going to get freely. But among that group, there's a segregation. There are overcomers and non-overcomers. To him who overcomes, nakeo, victor, winner, accomplisher, those who prevailed, they shall inherit all things. They're the ones that get the land. See, was the land given to the ones that died in the wilderness? Yes. Why didn't they possess it? Because they declined to possess it. Every believer is given an inheritance to sit on the throne with Jesus. But if we don't overcome, we don't possess it. Nope. He will inherit all things. All things? The city? The world? Yes. All things. And I will be his God. And he shall be my son. Now this is an important distinction. Every believer is a child, but only some believers are sons. Let me just remind you of some things we've covered before. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 1 where this is really clearly laid out. The difference between child and son. All you got to do to be a child is say, I'm thirsty, can I have a drink? But to be a son, you got to overcome. You've got to be faithful witness and not fear death. Let me just read these first five verses and I think it will be fairly apparent. This is written to Jews now, believing Jews, Hebrews. God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir the one who inherits of all things sound familiar appointed heir of all things did you catch that appointed heir of all things through whom he also made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had Jesus by had by himself purged our sins by dying on the cross, raising from the dead, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high because he had completed his task on earth and had overcome, having become so much better than the angels, so he became a man, which is lower than the angels, then was elevated above the angels because of obedience, has by inheritance this possession that he possessed obtained a more excellent name than they, than the angels. For to which of the angels did he ever say, God say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, Jesus was never born in eternity. He's always been in eternity. Jesus is God. So how could Jesus be begotten as a son? Well, this is an ancient Eastern treaty that's called a Susan Revassal Treaty. And the Susan, or the king, the potentate, if he has a faithful servant in his realm that he wants to honor as a particularly faithful servant, he has a ceremony. And he says, you, Lee, on behalf of your tremendous service to me, I have earned this privilege, and today I'm adopting you as a son. And you shall be my son, and I to you a father. 
And this confers on you these privileges in addition to responsibilities. For you are reigning in my kingdom with me. And we know from Philippians 4, same same idea. Jesus learned obedience even to death on a cross. And because of this was elevated to this high realm as a man. He was already king of the universe as God. But became a man and was elevating as a man. And became the son of the earth because of his faithfulness. Because he nakeo. He overcame. And this is the same idea that he's telling us. If you will overcome as Jesus overcame, if you will endure the fiery trials, embrace them, do the job I've given you to do, be faithful unto death, I will give you all things. So you got the gift. Look, all you got to do is believe to get here. Just believe enough to ask for a drink. Everybody's in that asks for a drink. But then now once you're in, I want you to focus on something. I want you to focus on... Being an overcomer. Because if you do, I'm going to have you inherit all things just like my son Jesus did. Mind-boggling. We can't really get our minds around it. But that's what this faithful witness and don't fear death leads to. And there's nothing easy about it. It's simple, but not easy. Which is why he's writing us this book. And why if we get this and we embrace this difficulty and say... I have a privilege of going through this difficulty because I get to do this. Now, we get a special blessing. Can't you see it right off the bat? Everything makes sense to us in our life because it's all an opportunity. Now, this next part, though, gets hard. I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. But again... If we think of this as Jesus' face and saying, for us as believers, not unbelievers, they get a different experience. For us as believers, this is having all that burned away. We shall be saved, though as through fire, then it really starts to make sense. In the early church, they understood this very well. This doctrine got perverted by the middle-aged church and they turned it into a massive fundraising mechanism. You can go to Europe today and you can see the massive churches that were built off of this concept because they said, you know, everybody wants to be an overcomer. What we can do is sell that privilege and say, if you'll pay us money, we'll intervene for you and you can avoid all of this pain. And they raised gazillions of dollars off of that. And it got so messed up that it just got lost. In the early church, you know one of their problems they had? People trying to get arrested and thrown into the arena to get eaten by lions. And they had to go to them and say, no, 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 no. Embrace that if it happens to you, but don't try to get it to happen. See, we're supposed to be faithful martyreos unto death daily, not try to get killed. Okay, if you get killed, it's okay. And that attitude of, bring it on, if you kill me, all the better. It brought down Rome. That's why likely one of the main reasons the emperor left Rome and went to the eastern Rome. Because how do you control a population that's happy to die? Well, what is this list here that we want to avoid? Let's just look at the first two. You know, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, liars. You know that list. This is also the same basic list as deeds of the flesh. If you go look at Galatians 5, and it says, For the fruits of the flesh are... It's the same basic list. And and the point in Galatians 5 is, if you want to know if you're walking in the Spirit or not, look at this list. If you're doing this, you're not. But if you have love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, then you are. It's a self-examination opportunity. But these first two 
are really important. And we'll end with this. Cowardly and unbelieving. We've gone over this before, but not in this specific context. Mark 4.40 has this same word. Jesus said, Peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so cowardly? They translated it fearful in that particular verse. Same word. How is it that you have no faith? And the disciples reaction to this was and they feared exceedingly okay so look this is the disciples that are cowardly so this is natural if you're cowardly just sort of join the club we're all this way how do you overcome being cowardly you grow your faith and you learn it one step at a time and you get to the point where you can say you know bring it on you don't get to the point where you ask for trials that's insane. You don't ever ask for trials. They, they come when, they're, when they are supposed to come. But what you do is you say, no matter what the circumstances are, this is what God has the best for me. So, number one, have the kind of faith that doesn't fear death. It fits with the theme. Be a faithful witness and don't fear death. And number two, unbelieving. And we're not talking about somebody here necessarily that didn't have enough faith to look or didn't have enough faith to ask for a drink of water. Certainly... That list fits for that category of people too. But this is John 20, 27, same word, Thomas. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here, look at my hands, reach your hand here, put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas, Thomas gave his life for Jesus. He was a faithful witness and didn't fear death. After he learned this lesson, we're being refined we're being taught. We're being sent through fiery trials so we have the opportunity to learn to be courageous believers and walk in faith. There's nothing easy about it. It's just an opportunity. So, when the guy sitting on the throne says, write this down. This is the big deal. Let's pay attention. And let me summarize it. The gift is something that you can't mess up. If you have enough faith to thirst and ask for a drink of water, you're in. Don't ever worry about belonging. It's yours. Now that you belong, learn how to walk in courageous faith apart from the world system. And if you do, you're going to get the same reward I gave my own son as a victor in life. Don't lose out on that. Well, that's a pretty good summary, isn't it? Here's your belonging. It's free. It's irrevocable. Don't ever worry about it. Don't ever take any second thought that I'm your father and you're my child. Just, it's done. You're mine. Now that you're mine, get it in gear and learn how to walk in faith and be a faithful witness and don't fear death because what I have in store for you, if you'll do that, is mind-boggling. Same thing I gave my own son. And I want you to get that down because if you... Read this that I told John to write down and you understand it and you do it, you're going to be blessed beyond what you can imagine. And just think of it practically. If we can embrace the idea that no matter what happens in this life, it's an opportunity for us to walk in faith, then what can disappoint us in a way that we can't overcome? This is an opportunity for peace and joy now in our daily life. We can say, of everything, this is just another opportunity for me. Well, if you adopt that perspective, and if you trust this God, 
And if you make the choices that He gives us to choose, not only do you have this amazing thing in the future, you've got a life of peace and joy now. Because we don't have to wait to experience this. That's pretty cool, don't you think? I'm not sure exactly how you get this onto a t-shirt. You know, but we need to try. Because this is the main thing. The one who sits on the throne wanted us to get out of this book. God, thank you for your amazing grace and your teaching of us as a father who wants us to understand something that just is real cloudy for us. I pray that you'll give us clarity and wisdom to see this, not just now, but also every day as we walk. And learn to be intentional about everything we do, that we're walking courageously, believing, and knowing that this is what you have for us if we can overcome the world system and doubt and fear. In Jesus' name, amen.